Good morning, party people. This is Ian Lenhart. This is the Damn Good Day Show, and I am coming at you from Miami, Florida to let you know that it is a damn good day to have a damn good day. Before we jump into today's unbelievable guest, and let me tell you, this podcast guest I'm about to have, I have a very long history. Before we jump into it, I want to talk to you about a recent experience I had with free diving. What is free diving? Free diving is when you jump into the water with just a mask, snorkel, fins, weight belt, and something to keep you warm. You jump into the water, you take a deep breath, and you try to hold your breath as long as possible, swim as deep as possible to be able to enjoy the ocean on one breath and then safely come back up to the surface. Now, why am I telling you about this? Because this is something that's always freaked me out, to be completely frank. I got started in scuba diving when I was 16 years old because I fell in love with the oceans after watching Finding Nemo. Dory, Nemo, shark bait, all that stuff just got me so jazzed up about the aquatic world that when I got my scuba certification, I fell in love with the ocean and being able to not anticipate what's coming next. Being in the ocean is like real life Pokemon. You have no idea what's about to roll up on you. It's like a level 23 Eagle Ray approaching, right? You could find a huge lobster, you could find a huge anemone, all the different crustaceans, all the different fry and different levels of fish. It's fascinating. But with scuba, you can only be in the water for a certain amount of time because you get stuff like nitrogen build up in your body. On the flip side, if you spearfish, you can actually go up and down and up and down. Obviously, you have to put some time in between that but you can actually enjoy the ocean longer because you're taking breath right from the surface. So recently I completed the level one freediving course with my course instructor, Errol Putigna. He's gonna be on the podcast in future episodes. And he taught me how to relax, calm my body, teach me about the mammalian dive reflex and show me and you, every human, that we can actually stay under the water a lot longer than we think. And that urge to breathe is coming from literally carbon dioxide trying to escape the body. So learning how to control that kind of makes you feel a little bit superhuman. And by doing that course, I was able to go on one breath, just free diving into the ocean, into the abyss, 66 feet and come back up. And I'm still here to tell the tale. Now I'm telling you this because I challenge you, do something that's outside your comfort zone. Do something that freaks you out a little bit because once you do it, once you realize how amazing and fascinating humans are, just gives you one more reason to stop thinking about all the stuff that's worrying you and start thinking about things that are gonna grow and build you and make you expand your mind. And speaking of expanding your mind, I'm so fired up for today's guest. This guest is really special to me and we're talking about Sean Moore, the CEO and founder of Trueface. Now. Sean and I have been buddies for a very, very long time. I had the pleasure of becoming the first employee of Sean's company, Chewy, along with the amazing co-founder, Nazar Chaffney. And the three of us really helped build this company up to the point where eventually it was acquired by Pangeum. Naturally, having Sean in my office in Miami, you know, after so long and so many years of watching the story and seeing the success that it became, This is a really special episode to me. So I wanted to ask Sean some really tough and intimate questions about the journey, right? Everyone wants to get to that point where they can build a startup, sell the startup and do all that stuff. But listening to Sean speak about his journey was truly inspiring and truly life-changing. So I'm so fired up to jump into this episode. I know you guys are going to absolutely love this. I've re-listened to this three times just because I can listen to Sean forever. And so without further ado, episode 133, this is the Damn Good Day Show. We're featuring Sean Moore. Let's jump into it. We're live. Sean Moore, he's in the building. He's at the Casa de Len Jones. You're here, man. This is amazing. Glad to be in Miami. First off, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations on Trueface, the acquisition with Pangeum, absolutely incredible. To see where you've come, let's say seven, eight years ago to where you are now, it's crazy and it's very surreal. It still feels weird. Uh, it definitely still feels weird, but I'm most excited about being becoming a new father, which happened in October. Congratulations. Tell us more. Uh, <laughs> what more is there to tell? Um, you know, last year was definitely uh, a year of change, you know, bought a house, had a baby boy and and sold a company, and so it was you know quite a bit front loaded on the first half of the year, and then everything fell into place. And you know it, it was really really incredible to watch the entire transition of 
you know, what happened with Trueface and then into a new organization while also becoming a new father and a homeowner, which you are now as well. Did you get married that year too? No, I got married in 2020. Okay, gotcha. I had our two-year anniversary last week. Yeah, I mean, if you could set up your life, you couldn't plan that any better. <laughs> I didn't plan it. <laughs> That's amazing. I uh, know it, it all happened. So, um, you know, really, really incredible year. So I want to take people back. And first off, the reason and the way I met you was I was in my senior year of college. And I remember I was taking my finals and I, I just wasn't happy. I had gone through network marketing. I had a taste of entrepreneurship. So I knew that there was a better way than just the school thing. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't know anything about tech. I have no experience. I need to get experience. How do I get connected to someone who's doing something big? And I reached out to about 100, 200 different founders that I found on CNET, TechCrunch, all this stuff. You were one of the few that got back to me. I think I followed up a few times. And then I ended up working with you um, just in the beginning just to, just to learn from you. And man, back then, you were, were building Chewy, a facial right. recognition doorbell. Can right. you tell us about that? Yeah, I still have them in my office now, um, the original ones. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think you reached out at a time where we didn't really know, we didn't have a plan for it. So, you know, you asking to help was like, would love help, but I don't know where, where you fit in in the organization because it was just two of us, myself and Nazar, the other co-founder. And so, you know, trying to figure out how do you provide someone work when you don't really know what you should be working on, I, I think was a difficult thing to do. Um, but I, I loved your ambition. I loved your drive. You know, you were, you were willing to jump in. And I remember intentionally testing you during your finals. Like, hey, can I get this done? I know you have finals, but I need this work. And you turned around in under 24 hours, I think, and got us to work. So, you know, a testament to, to, to what you wanted to do. You saw it and you went after it. And, and ultimately, you know, I think it worked out for you, or at least I hope so. Uh, but the, the Chewy days, yeah, it was, it was a, a pretty wild initiative. You know, back in 2012 was when we came up with the idea to put facial recognition on a doorbell. And it was us and DoorBot, the original ring, uh, that were in the marketplace, except for we were providing a fundamentally different product. They were taking your doorbell and tying it to your phone. We were automating your house based on the identity of the person at the door. So if it was a UPS driver, if it was yourself, your family, you know, had access to the door, or had access to the house. Um, so we were very, very early to this idea of the smart home. And, and ultimately, you know, spent five years uh, and, you know, the story traveling different parts of the world, offices in Colombia and Puerto Rico and San Francisco and Dallas and Denver, um, you know, trying to build something, trying to build something people wanted. You were just two guys that were thought that you could create a facial recognition doorbell with no background in tech. Where where <laughs> did the confidence come to pursue that? And when did you kind of hit your first real big reality check? Uh, good question. I mean, confidence, I think, is a mixture of, of arrogance, of, of being able to do it and drive. Um, so, you know, I think it was something that we were both intrigued by and we had enough uh, enough arrogance or, I guess, naivete to, to think that we could go do it. Because um, you were like 24, 25? 23. 23. 23, yeah. Uh, ultimately, you know, just, just constant learning. And, and one of the things that I credit to kind of building that confidence is when I was over in, in London, I took acting classes um, and that was to help me get comfortable speaking in front of people. And so I think that really did help. And I treated the UK and the, the London market as kind of a test ground before coming back to the US to pitch investors, to do startup competitions. And, you know, I, I didn't care if I failed there. It was, I'm never going to see these people again. You know, it's not going to impact whether we can raise money. I knew that the stage was back in the US. And so that really did help build confidence of just selling anything, you know, getting on stage, talking about something intelligently. And, and I think the biggest fall point for me or the, kind of the biggest realization was, uh, and I'll never forget it, I, I was in Dallas at a conference, the IEEE conference, and someone asked me you know, what I thought was a pretty basic question about why we picked a certain piece of the hardware that we had on the Chewy doorbells. And I didn't have the answer. And I was extremely embarrassed. And that was the point where I was like, I'm never not going to have this answer again. Uh, and it was very important that I took a kind of a, a two-pronged approach to building the business, the business side, but also intimately understanding our technology decisions. Do you think that you have this higher level of mental capability to be able to understand things? One might call it intelligence. <laughs> no. Or do you think that you just put in work and just, yeah, you just put the work flashcarded in. it into your brain? Put the work in. Um, I mean, you can learn anything online. And so I think it's just about, you know, do you have the desire to truly want to do something? 
and um, you know hours and hours and hours and hours. I think that the cool thing though is is you're writing your own story. You know, you're the author of that book, and, and your success or failure is determined by your willingness to to adapt. So, um, as you know, there are a lot of ups and downs, curves in the road, a full transition from a doorbell company to a you know, high technology facial recognition company. So, yeah, I think it's just the, the willingness to, or the perseverance to know that you're going to fail. How quickly will you fail? And then what do you do once that happens? I never knew about the acting class mm-hmm. in London. What does that entail? A lot of stuff. A lot of the, you work on like, you know, pitching random ideas, telling stories in front of an audience, having to adapt a story in front of an audience. They interject and say, now take it this way. So it's like a toast, toast makers. Or I've toast- not been to one, but yeah, I think probably so. Um, so it just gets you comfortable in front of people, you know, talking about something you're not knowledgeable about. Um, and 500 Startups did it too. If, if you remember, uh, I had to pitch Payment 24's technology. I pitched their company without seeing the deck prior. So the first time I saw the slides was on, when I was on stage pitching it. So just it gets, you, it gets you in a position where you can think on your feet. And then for you to go into that situation, you're on stage and somebody asks you that question, you don't know the answer and you just feel like an idiot. You think that you were more mean on yourself in that moment than maybe the crowd was? Yeah, definitely. Um, yes, absolutely. Thinking back on it, it's not an answer most people in the, the audience would have known. But it was enough to to push me in that direction of, I need to do better. I need to understand this technology better. I can't just be the business person or the business mind. I also need to know the technology well. One thing that was so interesting being on this journey firsthand, seeing through, because I probably came on, what, two years into you guys working on this? Uh, 2015-ish, around that time, yeah. 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 It was interesting because you were learning as you were going, right? Right. And big shout-out to Nazar Chaffney, legend. I miss Mm -hmm. him. One of the most (laughs) clever, interesting humans I've had the pleasure of meeting. So, Nazar, I hope hope you're listening to this right now. I love you, man. But the stories of seeing you two kind of bounce around to all these different things, there was the read-write labs, that accelerator, Mm -hmm. which at the time was an incredible opportunity. Remember that? Got us to San Francisco. Got us to San Francisco. I remember I was staying at a hostel um, for the the blue, the green turtle hostel or blue turtle, something like that in San Francisco on Broadway. Yep. And we were just going to the the, the thing and it was awesome. We met Craig Dudenhofer there. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that was a really pivotal moment because it was sort of one of those times that you, you got support, you know? Right. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I would say so. And, and absolutely to Nazar's credit, you know, it was an incredible partnership that we had um, and still do have. But, you know, I, I don't think either of us get there without one another. You know, it was really important to have the relationship that we had. I mean, we lived in a, in a studio apartment in Dallas together. Um, you know, it's, we were spending every single hour of every day together. And, and we really got to understand how one worked, but, you know, in different situations and where one needed help. And, and he did a very good job of making sure that I understood the technical, the technical components of the, of the company. It's crazy because Nazar is just a technical brain. I mean, he's incredible, right? right. But, you know, from the other, you guys yin yanged each other very, very well. Right. Yeah, we needed it. You know, I, again, I don't think we, we get there on our own. Do you think that that's a big problem you see among startups and founders is that there's too much maybe uh, similarities between certain people or their skills are overlapping too much? Do you feel that having that perfect CTO, CEO type of relationships, the the perfect situation? I think it depends on the, the company. Um, I don't think every company needs, you know, a highly technical CTO. Um, we did. You know, we absolutely needed that brain and in and I think, you know, he matured into that position because and I matured into the CEO of the company because, like you said at the beginning, we had no idea what we were doing. It was, you know, how quickly can we learn and, and who's learning at what pace and in what environment in, in the company. And so I don't know if you necessarily need that that kind of CEO, CTO start. Um, you know, look at Sendos, a, a very successful company. I don't believe they had that to start with. Um, so I think there were more co-founders that matured into their positions. Yeah. It's interesting the transition that happened when Chewy officially became True Face. Talk about that and that decision making process and what was kind of the final straw to, to push it there. Yeah, um, very interesting time for the company where we were trying to transition from a consumer product into a technology provider. And I remember the conversations we had in Boulder with one of our investors and advisors who, um, you know, sat me down and said, look, if you're going to make this transition, the brand has got to go. And, you know, he's a brand specialist and advertising specialist and a very successful one. So 
took that to heart and said, okay, if we're going to make this transition, we truly have to make a change. And we're going to start focusing on selling enterprise technology. We need to have a brand that's reflective of that. And Chewy was no longer that. Chewy was a cute little doorbell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I uh, went through a couple of branding exercises internally, uh, externally. And my mom ultimately came up, came up with the name of Trueface. And so um, credit to her for it. But I, I remember Nazar and I sitting on a bench in uh, San Francisco right by the water and you know, saying, what does this look like for us? How do we do this? We've got 16 people we're working with right now on Chewy. How do we do this? Like, this is a massive, massive decision. And you know, it affects people's lives. And that, 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 that hurts because we know we have to let go of hardware specialists and, and people that, that no longer serve the purpose for the organization. So we made the decision then and there, and a couple weeks later, we were at TechCrunch Disrupt and, and announced the new brand, the new products, and, and pushed everything forward as Trueface. Did it feel right when you did it? Oh, we were scared. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's either that or die, you know, so it's, it's either, either let the company go under or you make a, a meaningful change. And ultimately, you know, we, I wasn't ready to let it go. I don't think Nazar was either. And so made the decision and said, this is, you know, this is the effort we're going to put forth and let's figure it out. Yeah. And then 500 startups. So I remember in between there, we were living in SF and I remember telling you, I'm like, Sean, number one, none of us are making much money right now. We're in grind mode. Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think I should move to Colombia. And you <laughs> said, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember how awesome that was for the founder of the company to tell you, you know, an employee, hey, yes, I recommend you move to Colombia because <laughs> you guys lived and built Chewy and some other stuff in Medellin. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was a really, really interesting part of the company development when we were down there. We had a manufacturing facility in Medellin. Um, we got a grant from the government to do that. And we met a lot of really, really cool people. And so I thought it was an incredible piece of the journey, you know, personally for us, but also professionally to get to see that type of culture and, and, and how they're interacting with technology. And they were building a tech scene there and I think have successfully done so. Um, yeah, I mean, it was an important part of my life and I thought you should experience it too. So we had <laughs> no issue with it and, and definitely encouraged it. It's interesting that you welcome these new experiences, living in London, going and having these experiences at a really early age shape your confidence and your outlook on life and the different types of people you meet. I feel as I get older, I get, I just grow more and more confident for sure. I just become way more in tune with who I am. And I feel that I can go toe and toe with pretty much most, most people, right? I feel that your background of doing all these just kind of create you and Nazar just going to Columbia full send doing tech in Colombia before it was cool you right. know I mean that that's that probably shaped a lot of who you are today it definitely did you know I think the international experience and exposure helped also define um, kind of the core principles of what true face stands on and, and you know one of the, the key pieces of the business is ethical deployment of, of computer vision or, or facial recognition technology. And I think that traveling internationally, speaking on an international stage, getting to hear people's concerns about the technology has helped to drive us in that direction. So I, I really do think that exposure at a young age not only built confidence, but helped me kind of think through what does the world think of this technology? You know, what, what do the people that I meet, what are they saying? What are they concerned about? And, and how do we address that from a, a more holistic view of, of what we want to bring you know, to, to, to the buyer, but also to the world? So if you're starting a company and this isn't facial recognition, this is any field, do you recommend somebody just go to every conference they can and just sit back and absorb and listen? I mean, that's what we did. Um, it kept us busy, but like it also kept us engaging with people. And and ultimately, you know, I've got people now that are reaching out from a conference in 2017. They're like, it's been incredible to watch the journey. Congratulations. You know, we should catch up. So it, it has helped me build those relationships. And I think it is an important piece. And I, you know, I don't know how many conferences are attended in person right now, but um, it was really, really helpful for us. And we met a lot of cool companies that we are now seeing do the same thing that, that we're going through. So I think it was a great place to, to meet like-minded individuals who are going through similar problems who you could share stories with and, and keep up with. Um, I know it's not, you know, not everyone's able to do that depending on what part of their life they're in. But for, for us at that stage, it was very, very important. I found when the time at 500 startups was really exciting personally for me because I was able to go to business school. 
I know you were traveling all the time, so you were yeah, there half DC the time. DC to San Francisco every week, yeah. But you were, but it was moving, and it, kept, it gave the company life. It gave new blood into it. That's actually what started sort of the Damn Good Day show, because I started interviewing the other founders right. of the companies. <laughs> and it was just a really solid learning experience. And to think about the time when we raised money and got the office in Venice, that was awesome. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I wish I would have been more present at was the 500 Startups um, program just because I was traveling for work, you know. And so the kind of critical question there is, you know, do you focus on running your business or do you focus on growing, you know, growing the business in, in different areas, running the business through 500? And, you know, fortunately, you and Azar were there for the programming. So it's like I download that from you all. But, yeah, I mean, I wish I, you know, had more interaction with those other founders. I got to know a couple of them pretty well, but but you guys were definitely you know, more well-versed in their companies and what they were working on, and so I the wish I had been there more. The 22X fund was interesting. It was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't play play much of a role in it. Um, you know, we ultimately decided not to move forward with it based on a couple investment conversations we were having, but, um, you know, they, they pioneered something new, and it was cool to, to, to be part of, you know, that conversation that they were having and and to see individuals come together who are there for a certain reason, but like, you know, a couple guys and, and girls come up with a, a fantastic idea and, and to watch them build it on can, the can side. Can you explain like kind of brief high level what that is? I just think it's, it's really interesting because no one was doing this at the time, even though Trueface didn't participate in it. It was very cool. Yeah. Um, they brought together, it was equity in the companies that you could invest in. Um, so it was kind of decentralizing the investment thesis and, and you know, I, I don't know how they ended up doing it, but uh, you know, bringing together 22 plus companies or what what the what the final number was, I'm not sure, but allowing an individual to invest in a batch of of an accelerator program. So really, really special idea. Um, and you know, and I hope they're they're still doing well with it. But you kind of look at you know, 500 startups, Y Combinator, some of these very successful Boomtown, uh, which we were part of in 2014 very successful accelerators and, and you've got people that are picking companies after their demo day to invest in. And uh, the 22X fund was a way to say, well, we've got really great companies in this batch. You can diversify your investment through one investment in, in this fund. Yeah. It's really cool. The type of outreach you get at those demo days. I remember I was at the 500 startups demo day, just watching from the stands <laughs> and right in front of me, is Chamillionaire, yeah. the rapper, <laughs> hip hop police, riding dirty. That's right. Legend, absolute legend. And I was, uh, I think that's one of the few times I was just like, man, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Let me get that pick. It was me and Ash Weenie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they, 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 they bring a, a great audience of people. Uh, they really do. We didn't actually present at that demo day, um, you know, which we had the ability to at later ones and, and ultimately were able to raise money. So we, we never did it. But, um, but but a great experience. Totally. And then when you guys finally got raised some money and moved to Venice and had an office, what was that feeling like? Uh, surreal. I mean, you know, having having enough in the bank at that point to to like formalize an office and then to hire some people, um, it was cool. You know, you're you're experiencing firsthand the growth of a company that that you know, five six years ago was an idea. Um, so I, I you know I think that was a, a a pretty awesome experience. The first office we had was in the WeWork. And then we were able to get that office down on, on the beach. And so, you know, just a super cool feeling for everyone to be in one place for the first time. Yeah, on the beach. I was living in Santa Monica and Venice is only about three, four miles away. So I just bought a scooter and I was <laughs> I remember that. thing ripped. It went 18, <laughs> 20 miles per hour. It, was one, it wasn't no bird. You right. know, this thing was straight speed racer. I mean, you catch me. It was so dangerous. <laughs> it was, I remember. But I would just rip that back and forth, and we were on the beach. I was 27, 20, no, probably like 26, and I, I was living the dream, man, out in L.A., Santa Monica, Venice, California. <laughs> and it was such an awesome time just being in that office and seeing the company evolve, getting big enterprise clients working with government different it was just really exciting and then seeing the business expand from doing facial recognition on premise to the cloud was really cool because it opened us up to just completely new possibilities way more exciting than the hardware piece right yeah it definitely did um and if you remember we were using id verification tools for a while for kyc purposes and that transition into a cloud offering of just facial recognition so you know, even at that time, we were all still figuring out what do we want to sell and who are we selling it to um, and kind of grasping at some of the larger enterprises that wanted to talk to us. 
I think that's part of the, the, the learning curve there is there were a lot of shiny objects for us, right? There were a lot of the big companies who want us to build specific things for them and then ultimately decide they don't want it. <laughs> and so, you know, you spend six to 12 months working with these companies and then ultimately you don't make a sale. And so it's a lot of time to spend. But I would say that the learning from that period has helped drive decisions even today. Um, so, you know, it, it was it was worth it in the end because we were successful, but it was a massive time drain. For sure. And I want to talk about the grand finale that you would think about when you're first starting a company, when you're, you think, you know what, why not me? Why can't I do it? And then all of a sudden you, you get to a point where companies are reaching out, wanting to acquire, purchase, merge, whatever it may be. And you have that realization. You're like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, this is happening. Can you talk us through sort of what was going through your head when you first started getting offers? Yeah, um, it wasn't the first time. And so it was the first time I'd say it was very real. You know, the, the, the company, Pangeum, uh, we were doing some teaming work with and, you know, had a few conversations around, well, would, would an acquisition be interesting to you? And at the time, it, you know, it, it wasn't really on my radar. We were gearing up to, to raise a round of funding. Um, and so, you know, had to make the decision of, do we go down this road, this road um, and look at this acquisition? Or, you know, do we go raise a large round of funding and keep growing the business on, on our own? So I think that was a, a pretty difficult decision we had to make. And as we started to get further down the acquisition road, you know, it, it became clear to, to me that if we didn't like the group, if we didn't like the people, it was never going to work. So it, it didn't really matter the the financials of it. If we couldn't work with these people, you know, this is going to be this is not going to be successful. Um, so really, really important, and, and that's something that that I would look, you know, I, I would give advice on is is the people matter if you intend on working for the company after. And so it was always our goal in, in the discussion that you know Trueface would be brought in, we would continue to operate within the organization and get to continue to pursue some of the opportunities that we were pursuing, which was extremely important. You know, I, I don't think I was, was done with the work at that point. Um, and I'm still not, you know, I'm still very happy at the organization. And so it, it was important that the team got to join us, you know, that we brought the entire team over and that we got to con continue, continue to pursue those opportunities. So, you know, just kind of ended up being the, the perfect storm of, of opportunity, um, of, of us getting acquired, of us still working, you know, on Trueface work and just doing so under the Pangeum brand and with good people. Um, we did have other people come in uh, at the last minute and, and, and want to talk acquisition as well. But at that point, you know, I'd made the decision. Uh, we had made the decision as, as a board, as, you know, a group of, of, of the Trueface team. Um, so, you know, it really wasn't a consideration. It was we're going to move forward with what's going on right now. What are some of those emotions that's going through your head during those pro that process? Oh, man, it's tough. Is um, it exciting? Is it stressful? Is it is it more so one or the other? Uh, I mean, it ebbs and flows, you know, a lot of sleepless nights. Um, work was everything, you know, work at that point, you know, at midnight, if I'm getting an email, like you're sweating it, you're up and you're wondering what it says and you're responding to it. So it definitely was a stressful time. But I think as you accelerate through that, that process and you get past certain milestones that you set from day one, it starts to get very real. Like this is going to happen. Um, and so that becomes very exciting towards the end of it. And, you know, fortunately, um, we were here when that happened uh, and I got to see you and, and Chris um, and celebrate. And, and that was super meaningful to me because you, know, you were the first employee that we had. So being able to celebrate with the, the original folks um, was, was great. Um, so, you know, it was a long process. It probably took us nearly six months to get through. It's a, so surreal for me in that scenario because m most companies fail. Right. Most companies never see equity get realized. Right. Right. And the fact that these goons, right, you know, <laughs> intelligent, smart, but at the same time, charming, good, good charming humans <laughs> figured it out, got it together. was awesome, you know, right. and for to see the level of just the level of success that you and Azar have been able to hit to. That's just so cool and inspiring to everyone listening that anyone can do this stuff. Right. I mean, I get more confident every day just seeing your story and, and knowing you and our personal relationship. It's 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 awesome because it, it basically tells you and everyone listening to this podcast, what's your excuse? Like if you want to learn the business, you can learn it. If you want to grow it, you take baby steps, right? You work with people, you learn how to manage people, you make mistakes, you learn from your mistakes. 
I think something that helped you is you seem to have a really good group of people in your corner in terms of advisors, mentors. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It absolutely did help. Um, and just to touch on that too, I think, you know, perseverance and dedication to what you're doing is extremely important because you are going to fail. You're going to screw up. You're going to think it, you know, it's the end of the company, the end of the world, that you're a failure. You know, I, I think one of the more important pieces of that was like, you have to separate yourself from the company. So if the company does fail for whatever reason, does not mean you failed. Um, that's a tough realization because, you know, even now, my personal brand and, and who I am is tied to what I've done at Trueface, but it's not who I am. So I think that's a really, really important distinction when starting a company because you do feel consumed in what you're building and you should be. Um, but you do have to separate that. You know, if this doesn't go well or this contract doesn't hit, this deal falls through, it's not a reflection on you. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a learning opportunity. So to get, to get to your question, it was really, really important that I had a group of external advisors that, that I could talk to and share information with and, and do so in confidence and know that they had, you know, what, what was best for me. Um, because you can kind of get caught up in the day-to-day -day and, and even with your board, you know, everyone has different incentives and ideally you're all aligned at the end goal. Um, but, you know, it, it can get complex as you make decisions about where the organization should go. And so I had, a, you know, a great group of family that, that helped me um, and a great group of, you know, friends that I could lean on and talk to. And uh, as you know, you know, m the, my close, close friends are, are all in different areas of the world or in, in different industries. And I think that's really important, too. So, you know, one of my friends is a musician, like hearing what he goes through, how he's building himself up and, and building his brand. You know, it, it's not it's it's not too far off of what we had to do just in a different industry. Um, you know, and so you know, getting exposure to people that are, are entrepreneurs in their own right in, in different industries, I think, is also extremely important because you can share information that you don't think would be relevant. Um, but it, it is. It's very, very relevant. The learning from it is very relevant. Yeah. You have a very diverse group of friends from your South African friends to your badass Navy SEAL friends. Do you feel that you met a lot of these people through your college experience or is a lot of it just because of networking in, in other ways? I will credit SMU for a lot of it. Um, it was through college, um, but then also those friendships led into to new friendships and, and you know, kind of being out on the road all the time. You got to know people who are in similar situations. And you know when you're young and, and a lot of your friends are going into real estate or banking, um, you know, it's, it's hard for them to, to understand what, what we as entrepreneurs are doing. Um, you know, it, it's not, not a lack of effort. It's, it's simply the path that they took is very, very different than the one we took. And so, you know, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get people on the phone and, and to talk to people that, that understand the problems that you're going through or understand, you know, your typical workday isn't nine to five in a suit. Um, and so I think early on, it was important to have those relationships of, of people who are doing something similar, not necessarily in tech, but, but that I could talk to. Yeah. I mean, your class, some of the people that went to SMU that you're friends with went on to build super successful companies, right? Like your colleagues, they had, they had motivation. It seemed, right. seemed like a great place to go to school. We're all very competitive. And I, yeah, I mean, very competitive intellectually, uh, in sports. And so I think, you know, everyone was striving to, to, to outperform one another and, and in themselves. And, and, you know, a colleague actually asked me recently, do you, do you credit your competition to, to your success? And, you know, my, my response is that I was very competitive with others early in my life. Um, so, you know, I'd say you're in the early twenties and, and I don't know when it happened, but there was a switch that, that now, you know, I don't really care about the competition with others. I care about myself, you know, competing with myself and, and kind of improving myself and so I think that's a, a really important you know, learning step for me was stop competing with external you know, influence and, and people on the outside. Compete with yourself. If you want to be better every day, do it for yourself, not because you, know, you want to outperform others. Um, and that was a change that I think you know, was very healthy for me. If you're always comparing yourself to others, you're just always at a handicap because you're not that person. Correct. But then if you put in a 24-hour day and you still have energy, then keep working. Keep right. going, you know? <laughs> right. And it's interesting a lot in the creator world, right? When you're creating content because your content is against your past content. And from the marketing perspective, it's, it's always generating new ideas, always trying to think of a new clever way. But it seems like some of the principles in business are pretty simple, right? Build a great product that people love, that's very sticky, have an amazing marketing content plan, and then live. One thing you said last, not live. One thing you said yesterday that I was I haven't stopped thinking about because we got drinks last night. It was so much fun. <laughs> Shout out Chris too. 
And uh, we, you, you talked about one of the biggest things for some of these smaller companies is just lasting longevity. Can right. you tell me a little bit more about that? What you meant by that? Yeah, you got to weather the storm. Uh, <laughs> think the the average exit for a startup is seven years, and so you know everyone thinks a lot of these companies are built overnight. They're not. Um, they start off with one idea, and you go on this windy road, and, and ultimately find you know your path forward. And you know when I look at the, the facial recognition market, it really was, or it still is. You know how many of us actually made it? And and I think. You know, if you can weather the, the, the storm, if you can weather market changes, you know, COVID, um, you know, when you get to the end of that, there's there's a handful of very successful companies. And so you, you definitely want to do that. Um, it's just not always easy to weather the storm. You know, you, you've got to be very, very quick on your feet and adaptable. So, uh, you know, important for us, I think if, if we would have kept going down the doorbell route, route I'm not sure you know, it'd be the same outcome for us. Uh, but we had the learnings from deploying facial recognition at the edge and, and on hardware from 2013 on. So it did set the foundation for even work we're doing today. It's crazy. I remember we weren't NIST certified for quite some time and we were always so pissed off because all these other companies were like, ah, we're 20th in the one to N category or whatnot for NIST. And we just never hit it. And then when we first got NIST certified, was that one to N? One to one. One to one. And do you know what we were ranked? No, I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> but we were we were ranked. Yeah. And I remember that being such a big deal. And I just found out recently that Pangeum, uh, now a true fit true face is, is now Pangeum, to see that you guys got number one in the world. Fastest out. Can we talk yeah. about that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, credit to the engineering team, man. That that's that's them. Um, you know, one of the things that we were focused on, uh performance, so accuracy and speed. Um, and when you look at the accuracy list, you know, you're seeing all these Chinese companies at the top of the leaderboard. And, and the reason being is they have access to just troves of data, billions of images. And so it's very difficult for us to compete at that level and, and collect data ethically and, and responsibly and, and sourcing that's expensive and takes time. So in 2017, you know, we, we saw that you know, we've got an opportunity here to lead. Is it going to be speed or is it going to be accuracy? And so we focused on speed because that was the path of least resistance for us. Um, while we spent time ethically collecting training data to try, to try to compete on accuracy. And so, you know, we were laser focused on it and, and ultimately number one in the world out of, I think, 380 plus submissions. Um, so super exciting for the organization. And, and you know, now we're, we're up there in accuracy as well. We're, we're top three in the Western world with accuracy. So it did benefit us, um, and we did things right. You know, we didn't we didn't skirt the rules. We didn't gray lines. Um, you know, we collected data ethically. It took us more time, but we ultimately got to the point where we're now number one in the world in speed and number three in the Western world in accuracy. So, very very happy with the performance, and, and hopefully we're going to get a, another result uh, late next week, and hopefully it's just further up there. I mean, big shout out to Nazar, Emmanuel, Cyrus, Chinmay, all the homies. I hope you guys watch this. I miss you. <laughs> That's incredible. Number one in the world. Take that, China. <laughs> yeah, we were very, very happy with it. Uh, and for your listeners, NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology or Science and Technology. Um, and so it's, it's a way for, for organizations to benchmark performance of facial recognition companies. And the ethically sourced data. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, you know, collecting data... Uh, Traditionally, there's a couple of ways of doing doing it. There's open source data sets online, celebrity data sets, uh, or you can pay people for their likeness. Um, so you can actually, you know, tell someone I'll give you five dollars. And Google famously did that in Times Square, five dollars for a couple pictures of your face. So extremely expensive when some of these algorithms are trained on billions of faces. Um, and so, you know, we went the route of, you know, when we collect this data, people are going to know about it. If if you know we've got to pay people for it, we'll pay people for it. Um, our competitors. You know, took a different approach of, of kind of collecting data from different applications uh, where people didn't give consent or didn't know. And so they were able to, to completely bolster their holdings of data, but do so in a, in a pretty unethical and potentially illegal way. And so, you know, it's just important for us that, that we did things right. Um, and, and there's been an FTC lawsuit out for it. Um, you know, legislation will change regarding how you collect data. And so, you know, that's a, a massive competitive advantage to have that much data but we just we had to do things right. We wanted to do things right and, and kind of, you know, keep on the, the straight and narrow path forward of we'll collect this data. It will take us time. We know it will take us time. We know it will cost us money, but we have to do this right. I remember the team did a pretty made a pretty good internal system to label, tag and train mm -hmm. data. 
I remember all the employees, we were just told every day we had to train 20 new pictures. So we're just sitting in front, just <laughs> doing face scans of ourselves. Yep. And uh, there's been a lot of companies that have been spun up that specialize in that. And those companies Correct. alone are becoming $100 million companies. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, data is the catalyst of performance. And so um, it's extremely important. I do personally think that it will be commoditized in the coming years. Um, there will be more access to data, cheaper and, and then ultimately, you've got to compete on something else, speed. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're well positioned there. Once, you, when, once every company has relatively the same amount of data, the accuracy is, is not as meaningful. Um, everyone's performing at the highest level. Where, where that will change a little bit is, is you know, the variation in lighting that you have, the camera angles, and then how well you specialize in that. But um, ultimately, speed will become much more important. It, when looking back at this journey, it's very high level sort of question, sort of, you know, sitting around a campfire drinking some whiskey, just talking about life here. When looking back at the journey and all the ups and downs, I mean, I remember you went through crazy, crazy headache and stress. You and Nazar, I mean, both of you guys had to figure out ways just to cope with it, right? Because right. you had investors that you, you know, you wanted to make a return for, right? It wasn't just about you. You had stress from all different areas what are some of the things that maybe you you would have done differently or you wish you could have done over for a young founder in that scenario bootstrapping and then building up and eventually raising money and doing all that stuff what are some of like the core lessons that just burned into your soul i don't think i'd do anything different um because it was important that i learned those lessons and go through those those highs and lows um but i i think in you know 2015 when we were in colorado part of the, the, the coping mechanism with stress for me was getting outside. And I think I told you that in, in San Francisco, it's like, I just need to go for a walk. I need to go for a hike. I need to be outside. Um, and so that was my way of kind of just taking time to myself, getting away from my phone, from my computer, and just kind of letting myself breathe. Um, so that was, you know, extremely important. Learned it a little bit later than I would have liked to, but, you know, it became a critical piece of, of I need time for myself to sit, think, and in silence. And that was how I did it. What are your thoughts on burning the bridges and going all in? In what sense? Like quitting your job and doing that? Yeah, like how do you how do you see that today? If you're a young founder and you're thinking about starting a business and you're ready to go, but you currently have a cushy, great job with healthcare, when it, that's something that you wanted a yeah, long we time. Yeah, that for a while. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it depends on on the situation you're in in life. You know, not everyone can can take that risk. And if you've got a family or you've got a mortgage or student loans, it becomes a lot harder to do that. And so, you know, I was fortunate that that I didn't have have you know I didn't have much of that to 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 pay into. And so, um, you know, I think I, I was a little bit more free to do that, and I'd saved money up from the job that I was working at. And so, um, you know, I, I I knew what I was getting involved in. And I knew the risk, and I knew I could go back to that job if I needed to. So, it's tough. Uh, it's a personal situation that, that you have to make a decision on. Um, you know, some people promote the the idea of you know working ten or fifteen percent on the, on the side hustle until it grows big enough, and then making the jump. Um, that's not how my brain works. You know, I need to be all in. I need to be thinking about something all day, and 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 that's you know how I can kind of craft that idea in my head. So. I'm not probably going to be the one that, that, that spends, you know, 10% or 15% of my time working on something. If, 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 you know, if I'm a young entrepreneur, my personality says go all in. You know, sometimes when you achieve a goal, you think it's going to be this in your head. You're so fired up about it. And then when you get there, you're like, eh, it's, this is great. But, you know, maybe m might not live up to your expectations, right? Or right. you hit the goal, so now you have a new goal. How do you think your mind has changed now that you are a successful startup founder with a successful exit? You made all of your investors a lot of money. How do you think that you've changed uh, if you if you were to say yourself now that you have the nice house and you have the beautiful child and you have the great relationship? I mean, you're in. Does, you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm still hungry. You know, it, 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 to me, it wasn't like a, that happened and it was done. I mean, I was back to work on Monday. Um, you know, it happened on Friday and, and I didn't even take any time off because I was still excited and I still am excited about the work that we're doing and its impact. Um, you know, one of the, the really kind of cool and, and unique experiences through that transaction was you know, that happened end of May, June 1, I think it was. 
Um, in, in October, we announced a partnership with Delta. Um, and then in November, we announced a partnership with Google Cloud in the UK. So getting to see in the first six months of an acquisition, these massive partnerships um, you know, happen is, is just really, really cool. And so I think that, that, kept, that kept momentum up in my head and, and it kept me hungry for, for, for more. But you know, I, I don't think it was like a stop point where transaction, transaction happened and I was like, oh, I'm successful now. You know, I, I don't think I ever viewed it that way. And, and I didn't stop to, to, to kind of sit back and reflect as much as I want to or wanted to at the time. But I spent a lot of time over the, the holiday break, you know, kind of writing reflection letters and, and, and writing investor letters and, and employee letters and, and just kind of, you know, thinking back to, to 2012, 2013, 2014 and, and the people that I was able to meet. And, and you know, I don't think the story ended uh, June 1. I, I think it, it's just a chapter. Um, and, and now we're, you know, we're pushing forward as a new organization. And, and, you know, having that success behind me, I think just, you know, it, it adds the resume, but it didn't change anything in my head. I think that people that don't have just whether it be money or success or not, they're always just chasing it. Right. Right. And they think that that's the root cause of happiness. But the most happy people are people that are just constantly learning, constantly one upping and challenging themselves. And a lot of the times we see people as being extremely successful but those people are so self-critical of themselves and you have no idea the mental battle that they're going through. They might look at themselves as garbage, right? right. But to, to you, you're like, man, damn, you Zeus, you know? <laughs> so it's interesting that the people that are the most happy, it seems that they're the ones that are most driven. They're always looking to learn and they're always looking to grow, right? And all these things are just milestones. Yeah, um, you know, I think you're right there. I, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people are, are chasing money to buy themselves time to do what they want. Um, but if you're doing what you want, then you're not chasing money for that reason um, or chasing money at all. So I, I think that's, you know, a distinction in my mind of you, you, you've got people in the grind and, and working nine to five or working nine to nine, just chasing money. And I, I don't think that that's, you know, for me personally, that that wasn't the end goal. Um, and it's still not. It's 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 kind of... A, a means that that now I can you know buy a house um, yeah. and and you know create a family and care for a child. Um, so I, you know I don't think that 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 that's the end goal. Um, I think it's you know you want to spend your day how you want to spend your day, and if if that's working because you're passionate about what you do, then you're as happy as you could be. I asked you this question yesterday. I'm going to ask it to you again. It's basically a lot of times people haven't really thought through what happiness means to them right they you know you're always kind of chasing like oh this car you know the house you know whatever it may be and you just you just think that you're happy then but sometimes people are always thinking they need more they need more they need more but really they might be happy now so the question is have you ever stopped and thought about what true happiness means to you I did, and remember my answer last night? Oh, yeah. Fatherhood. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, you know, everything that happened last year, that was the coolest, most amazing and rewarding experience, for sure. And it still is every day. So I, I think, you know, when when I sit down and think about where I want to be in five, ten years, it, you know, work doesn't really pop into my head. It's my family that does. And you were telling me about how it meant so much to you that your family put so much sacrifice when raising you and you try to do that same level of commitment in, in your current relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you, you, you realize at that point um, how much effort goes into raising a child or you know, two, two or three children and, and the sacrifice that your parents make. Um, so extremely important, but, but a, a pretty, you know, pretty honest reflection on it. Yeah, it's interesting that you have to go through the experience to learn. It's just, <laughs> I have to do it. All the most interesting people have gone through the most shit, you know? Yep. They've, the people with the challenging lives and the struggles and the hard stuff, like that's creating your story. Right. And if you think about it like that, that helps you get over it and helps you overcome and eventually win. Because right. then you're going to tell your story. No one wants to listen to a dumb story. <laughs> Chewy becoming true-faced from... Uh, going to Colorado with Boomtown to rewrite to 500 to Venice to now DC. I mean, you couldn't write a better story. I mean, it's been fun, man. It really has. It's fantastic. Now, this is just the, I remember asking you this last time we podcast, that was like episode 44. So if you guys want to do a little retroactive where we were then to where you are now, uh, check that out. But 
if you could have went back in time and told yourself one, two, or three things at, let's say, 23, 24 years old when you're just just getting started with this, that could have saved you a ton of time, money, heartache, headache, less nature walks. And it can't be, I wouldn't have told myself anything because it made me who I am, which is a great, great answer. What are some of those things that you would have told yourself? It's really important who you decide to work with, um, both from a, an employee perspective, a founder perspective, an investor perspective, because those people are, are ultimately going to be there for you or they're not. And if they're not, it's going to create a lot of problems for you. And so, you know, I think it's, it really is a function of the group that you have around you and, 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 you know, how that group supports you and how you support them. So I think that, you know, that would be the most important lesson for myself at that age is, you know, don't, don't just take money from someone because they have money. If they're an investor, for instance, you know, just because they, they can write a check for 25 or 50 grand doesn't mean you should take it. And I think one of the goals early on in it, you know, it's, partially because you see the headlines and investors are entrepreneurs celebrate raising money. Um, and, and the, you know, the headline makes that, you know, XYZ company raises 5 million, 10 million, 25 million. That, that should be celebrated because it's a hard effort, but that's really not a goal. Um, you know, that's when the work starts. That's when the real work starts. And now you have external pressure. And so you want to make sure that people that you are raising that money from have the same goals that you have, um, you know, treat customers the same way. And, and, and so, it's just really, really important that you pick the right people there. Yeah. And do you think that's a gut thing? I mean, you, you just got to get to know them. I, I know entrepreneurs that took on investors that, that they you know, ended up having to buy out or, or fall out with, and, and it ultimately creates significant stress in an already very stressful environment. And so if you put the work in up front to really get to know someone and what motivates them, I, I, don't, I don't think you, you don't give yourself the opportunity as, as much to run into that issue. Love it. Miami, Florida looks great on you, Sean. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. You got to come here more often, man. I love it down here. I love this. Thank you so much for coming here, checking this out. Always, man. I'm so grateful. I sent you a random email one day, just slid into the DMs. The original DM. The original <laughs> DM. And, and now here we are. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Super proud of you. Proud of Nazar. Proud of the entire team at Trueface. Huge congrats to everyone at Pangeum. The whole organization is absolutely incredible. Uh, just talking about and hearing your stories just from yesterday about all the unique companies within the portfolio and, and what they're doing, it's it's special. And man, like five, six years ago, you should take a deep breath and say, damn, man, we did it. Like you did it and you were the one leading the ship. So everyone was looking to Sean Moore during the hard, hard times and you did it, man. That's freaking cool. So obviously, this is just one little notch on your belt, and you're looking to do a bunch of other exciting stuff, but excited to continuously have you as a guest on the Damn Good Day show <laughs> as we in. explore the incredible, extraordinary life of Sean Moore. With that said, we're out. Thank you for listening to another episode. Remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.